This is a Federal News Network podcast. We conclude our series exploring the role of unions in the federal workforce. This week, we've heard from a highly pro-union academic, an anti-union right-to-work advocate, and a longtime federal executive who's of mixed views. Now we hear from the president of one of the major unions itself, the National Treasury Employees Union's Tony Reardon. Tony, good to have you on. Thank you, Tom. It is great to be with you. And I imagine that you feel that federal unions definitely have a role here in the good operation of the uh, public's business. So I don't think I have to answer that question for you. But as a longtime union employee and uh, head of one of the big ones, what do you think unions do best with respect to the discharge of the public's business through federal agencies? Tom, that's an excellent question. You know, I think unions provide employees a meaningful voice in the workplace through collective bargaining. You know, frontline workers have the best viewpoint for how to improve government services, and their union helps them to be heard and makes it safe for them to express their viewpoints. I think unions also do a terrific job in making sure that federal service laws are upheld and that workers are protected from discriminatory or unfair treatment. And unions certainly promote the value and nobility of public service. You know, we need in this country the best and brightest employees in our federal government. And unions push for policies that can make federal employment more attractive, such as telework. We've heard a lot about that over the course of the pandemic. Also, parental leave, fair pay, good benefits, and so much more. And finally, I would say, Tom, that unions do, I believe, an outstanding job advocating for funding and resources so that federal agencies have what they need in order to accomplish their missions for the American people. And from the union standpoint, what do you feel that agency management can best do to get the best out of a relationship with a union that's there, say, agency like the uh, Treasury Department's IRS, for example. That's kind of the original NTEU place of uh, bargaining. What should managers do to make the most of it? One of the things that I always talk about when I first go in and start talking to a department head, for example, agency head, or even a secretary in the cabinet, is NTEU is looking to have a collaborative and productive relationship with the agency. And I think oftentimes that actually starts with effective communication. And there are quite a few examples. You mentioned the IRS. You know, I think a really good example of the relationship working the way that it's envisioned is really around the pandemic, something that all of us in this country have been experiencing for the last year. And that is that, you know, early on in the pandemic, Commissioner Reddig from the IRS and I and a couple of our uh, uh, folks from our senior team got together and we established our respective COVID-19 teams. And even to this point today, those teams get together on a weekly basis and certainly almost talk daily or exchange emails daily. The idea behind it was let's establish a formal communication between the two parties so that we can get problems and issues put on the table and have a quick way to deal with those. And that's what we did. And and it has really, I believe, been essential to how the IRS has addressed the pandemic for employees. 
and for our ability and TEU's ability to make sure that the IRS was aware of the uh, issues that employees were experiencing. And I think it's been a pretty good way to go about doing this. We're speaking with Tony Reardon. He's president of the National Treasury Employees Union. And what mistakes do managers make? And let's say that things have changed a lot since the Trump administration into the Biden administration, and whether they were mistakes or just deliberate way of dealing with unions because of a philosophical background. But regardless of that, what mistakes do managers tend to make when trying to deal with a union? Well, you know, sometimes what happens is that management won't be necessarily interested in sitting down and actually having those conversations. You know, I can just give you a really good example of where that was the case. In the last administration with the Department of Health and Human Services, what we had was when we sat down to bargain a contract with the department, their bargaining team made very clear early on that they were not interested in being at the table with us. They weren't interested in our proposals. And, you know, we had something like 16 weeks of bargaining scheduled. And, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to go that long, but that's what was in the ground rules. And unfortunately, after a couple of days, the HHS team decided that we had reached a point where both parties couldn't go forward, that we were at impasse, couldn't move forward. You know, that really demonstrated, I think, their view that they weren't interested in having any communication. They weren't interested in sitting down and having meaningful dialogue with the union. And, you know, certainly we believe that the law requires for them to actually sit down and meaningfully bargain with us. And and so when they make clear that they're not interested in what employees' voices are saying and what they're interested in, that's a real problem. And just for those that may not know, given the fact that federal unions can't negotiate pay and benefits, what are the chief elements that you bargain with, with an agency? Well, certainly we bargain over a wide variety of things. The contract will include all kinds of issues that an employee would face in the workplace. Really, every part of their work life, what happens in the workplace is really governed by the contracts that we bargain. And certainly, like you said, it's not pay, but it certainly is hours and schedules and all kinds of things that impact the daily lives of employees. You know, what sort of grievance rights do they have overtime? Uh, As I said, schedule, you know, all kinds of things. Does it also include perhaps the way that work is done? I'm thinking, again, using the IRS as an example, there's a lot of process that happens at the IRS, and long-term employees on the front lines might have a better idea of the best and most efficient way to execute a process. Could that be part of bargaining? Absolutely. And we certainly have those kinds of conversations with the agency. In fact, at the IRS, we are currently uh, engaged in bargaining with them. And so you're exactly right, Tom, that those are issues that we discuss too. And why they're so important, I think you hit on, which is that frontline employees are the ones that are often doing the work. They're the ones who are dealing with customers, for example. And so they really see the impact of how work is done or should be done. And so bargaining is a really good opportunity for us to sit down with agency management and talk about those things and try to make sure that the voices of frontline employees are heard. And when you counsel those that are running the locals, local union heads, What do you counsel them to avoid doing to help maintain good relations with the agencies? 
whenever I have conversations, and I often do with management groups, and obviously I certainly do with NTEU's leaders around the country, and the number one thing that I always go to is communication. I think that is really the basis oftentimes for either building a successful relationship or not. The fact is that nobody likes surprises. Managers don't like surprises, and neither do employees, and certainly uh, our NTU leaders don't. So if, for example, a manager is deciding on some new way to do something, or there's some new information that they're going to ultimately convey to employees, I'm always suggesting on both sides, both on the union side as well as on the management side, get out in front of it and have a conversation with uh, your counterpart, either in the union or in management, and talk about what it is you're trying to accomplish and listen to what the other side has to say. Because my view is that in the final analysis, it's that back and forth and that communication and that really trying to understand the position of the other side is where you really get at the best outcomes. And finally, what do you see as the future? Just more of what we've seen, or do you have some kind of grand vision for where this whole union movement in the federal workspace and the future dealing with agencies should go, looking ahead? You know, Tom, looking ahead, I mean, I think that to the extent that we're able to have management and unions really sitting down and having meaningful dialogue. And I think this is something that the new administration has really pushed forward. I will tell you that since President Biden has come into office, I have had so many conversations with various secretaries in the cabinet. And what they've really demonstrated to me is that they are very interested in what frontline employees value, uh, what's important to them, and, you know, ways that they think that they can get the work done better. And I think if management and if unions have that framing, you know, I always tell management that there are really three key elements to this. One is making sure, of course, that employees are valued and that their opinions are heard, that they're listened to. The second thing is making sure that the agency missions, the way that we're working, enables agency missions to best be addressed. And the third thing is that something that we all share is making certain that we're doing the work in the best way for the American people. And I think if we focus, both parties focus on those three things, we often have, as I said earlier, some really positive outcomes. Tony Reardon is president of the National Treasury Employees Union. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom. We'll post this and all of the interviews in the series, Federal Unions for Better or Worse, at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Check off the Federal Drive, subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me. 
And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, And the idea that we don't have the human interaction uh, which I think is very important when you think about the I- empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America, and certainly within me, uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to be uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina, uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have uh, my willingness to to fight for change, and that was that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, the 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 massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina. A very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life, and and it conjured up again these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha- Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community uh, inspired by that tragedy 
And now we have a whole broad historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life? And what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most. And that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream, which we often define and think of his big, I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background in federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees and, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce. And I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular common everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. 
I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work is done. And, um, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me. If there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. And you've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.